What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan McGarrian, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to James Clark about his new book, The Dissolution of the Monasteries, A New History, published by Yale. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, your book was an absolute pleasure to read, uh, extremely compendious and really a detailed account of this fascinating, um, underdocumented, but really pivotal period of history. Um, you know, you introduce the aim of the book by saying that you will trace the monastery's end from their own point of view. Can you unpack that a little bit and situate your work in the historiography? Yes, absolutely. This is an episode which has traditionally been approached by historians as an act of state. Uh, The process uh, initiated by the government machine, if you like, something that is done to England and Wales and its people by uh, the ruling uh, elite Um, And I was keen to upend that and to look at this process from the people's point of view, primarily, of course, um, from the point of view of those who lived and worked and and took their livelihood from these institutions that were spread around the the kingdom, Um, but also from those who were the onlookers at ground level. What did this extraordinary episode the the shutting down of one entire constituency of society. What did it seem like? Appear to be what what uh, feelings did it uh, elicit uh, among those who who watched uh, and and had as it were a ringside seat, but who were not the agents of this remarkable change. Um, those, uh, as is so often the case in 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 periods of history, those. Um, who are on the receiving end of of acts of state? I felt that there was a a human history to be uncovered, um, and it's it's always been, I think, something of a weakness in in British historiography um, to to map out um, a, a sort of historical narrative, perhaps a, a narrative of 
of progress towards uh, modernity through a series of acts of state, of of crown and government, of, of parliamentary statute. And in this instance, lying behind all of that uh, were a great many people, personalities, and, and individual responses to be recovered and, and, and in a sense, to be heard again. Yeah, and I, I mean, that completely comes through in the book. Um, you know, basically two-thirds of the book are really about monasteries in the world that they existed in, you know, the first third before the dissolution and and the second third, you know, after. Um, so could you, you know, on, along that uh, vein, I'll, I'll ask you a few questions about kind of the pre-dissolution period and the, the place of monasteries in um, late medieval, early Tudor life. Um, you know, so for hundreds of years, monasteries had loomed large in the physical landscape, and you document this um, really well. So, you know, how would the physical presence of the regulars have made itself known in the townscapes and countrysides of early Tudor England? Well, in short, in every every imaginable way, um, I think we start perhaps with with the landscape and environment itself. That the the backdrop to many people's lives in early sixteenth century England and Wales is one that has been painted in, if you like, by those regular religious houses and and their people over many generations. Uh, many places of, of settled habitation had grown up in England and Wales precisely because, firstly, there was a monastic foundation, a monastery, uh, a nunnery, a, a friary uh, close by. And um, the very uh, streets um, that the neighbourhood grew up around and and uh, the population uh, navigated their way through were marked out and determined by that institution. So even before we begin to think about the place of these institutions in the religious life of wider society, just the physical infrastructure is rooted in those institutions and in the uh, decisions that they made as they established themselves as as settlements in in that setting. And then uh, the populations that grew up around them find almost every aspect of their livelihood, their their work, their in, in many cases their their um, access to traded goods, from food to manufactured goods, and a great deal of their cultural experience, they draw from the neighbouring monastic institution. Uh, and in in much of provincial England and Wales, it's, it's true to say, even in the 16th century, that a good proportion of the local population would have had some working relationship, at the very least, with the neighbouring monastery. Uh, many of them would have been employed, many of them would have looked to that institution uh, for the buying and selling of goods, um, and, uh, and many of them would also have at least included them among the range of church institutions that they uh, selected as, as focal points in their own religious life. 
Um, that, that's a complex way of saying, in other words, that not everybody chose a monastery to, uh, to worship in as a, as a Christian, but they chose a monastery alongside a number of other churches as important places for them as they, they practiced their, their religion. And my point in the book really is that far from this relationship with monasteries having declined and faded for most of the inhabitants of Tudor England, whilst it had changed, it had not receded over the horizon and become something really of of just uh, a distant memory. It was still a living relationship. There's no doubt it was changing. And if you like, the terms of engagement between monasteries and the people who lived around them, those were changing and being, to some extent, renegotiated. But um, that doesn't mean to say that they were now living separately from one another and, and looking at each other with a growing sense of mutual suspicion. That's often been the, the story told after the Reformation. Our Protestant uh, forebears um, chose to remember the relationship with monasteries very differently. Of course they would, because monasteries symbolised the, the traditions of church and religion that, that the reformers uh, of Protestant England had wanted to sweep away. But if we reach beyond that, that propaganda and that very partisan view, we find a relationship that is um, much closer in early 16th century England than, than we'd been led to believe, um, and, and much more dynamic, as I say, um, still changing and evolving, even though these institutions have been there in the, uh, in the landscape for hundreds of years. Mm, yes, and um, uh, maybe we can tease that out a, a little bit more because it seems like you know there's two ways to look at monasteries as sort of a household economic unit. Like on the one hand, you document how um, you know as basically households or you know economic units um, uh, by the 16th century, their administrative demands required really a population larger than existed in the Tudor years, leading to, um, you know, much heavier domestic involvement by the regulars themselves. But, you know, on the other hand, there's all sorts of people outside of the precinct walls who are uh, economically implicated both inside and adjacent to the walls. So, um, yeah, if that makes sense, maybe just... uh, uh, tease out a little bit more about the economic integratedness of the monasteries in their local communities. Yes, absolutely. I, th- I think one way of, of expressing what you've just traced there is that there was a time earlier in the Middle Ages when the neighbourhood needed the monastery more than the monastery needed the neighbourhood. And by the 16th century, that balance has shifted. And there's no doubt that to keep the complex corporation that is a large monastery functioning and thriving requires an ever more dependent relationship on the neighbourhood outside. Uh, Monasteries were, by the 16th century, not as large 
uh, a body of, of uh, professed men and women as they had been um, in the, say, 12th century or the 13th century. Um, they were much reduced. They never never quite got back to the numbers they'd seen before the impact of the Black Death in the 14th century. And often there simply weren't a sufficient number of uh, monks or, or, or religious women, nuns, to um, to sustain all of the demands of running these large institutions. So they they were more and more dependent on a, a cooperative and and in many ways transactional relationship with the neighbourhood outside. They depended on them for uh, their um, their service as employees. They depended on being able to trade with them. Monasteries increasingly don't um, grow all of their own food. Uh, they're not entirely self sufficient, like any other large household in. Uh, late medieval and and early 16th century England and Wales, they are um, having to um, depend on commercial markets to uh, sustain and support themselves. Um, And and that is perhaps the main way in which this relationship has changed um, by the 16th century. As I say, uh, at the time, say, of the the Norman Conquest, Neighbourhoods might well have felt that they were very much subordinate to the grand, overpowering church institution that was in their midst. Um, That was no longer the case in the early 16th century. It's a much more, uh, I suppose you might say, symbiotic relationship. There is a mutual exchange either side of the precinct wall. But I would argue that in many places, because of that increasing mutuality, of the relationship, there was a sense in which perhaps monasteries were not seen by many neighbourhoods as a profound threat to their independence, to their their cultural identity, to their self-determination, but rather there was a sense in which um, they occupied a shared space and and, and in a sense a shared journey through their lives. And perhaps that's one way in which the Tudor regime underestimates and misjudges the place of these institutions, that they were perhaps, if not, if not quite loved and adored by their neighbourhoods, they were certainly valued in a, in a pragmatic sense. And I think there are some in the Tudor regime who don't quite grasp that as they begin to try and tear them down. Mm, yeah, and both in the economic sphere, but also in the cultural and religious sphere, one of the things that really struck me is that these are very kind of canny and adaptable uh, organizations. There's a lot of changes going on in this period in English history, and they seem to be able to, um, you know, adapt and and reshape themselves to cope with it. And, you know, we just described how that worked economically, but also sort of on the social and religious side, you know, the historiography has for a while recognized that the kind of end of the Middle Ages saw a real explosion of local, popular, adapted religion. And the monasteries were able to not just kind of survive that, but also to um, thrive under it through the adoption of like, uh, as you described, kind of relics and other things that almost religious or cultural tourists would want to see. Yes, that's right. I think it's something, in fact, that historians have not paid close enough attention to, that um, far from seeming to be 
out of touch with the dynamics of uh, religious um, sensibility in late medieval and and early 16th century England and Wales and 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 in the wider European scene. In many ways, monasteries are very ready to reflect back to wider society those those very sensibilities that that new kind of um uh, lively independent piety that we we associate with with lay people at the end of the middle ages um they not only reflect it back but to some extent they they guide and shape those mm. impulses that we see emerging among the laity at this time. Um, a good example of that is um, the growing enthusiasm for very um, elaborate forms of religious worship. Religious worship at the end of the Middle Ages is becoming ever more lavishly performative. Um, it's a, a colourful spectacle and it's, a, it's an aural musical spectacle. And monasteries use their scale, the scope of their churches and their clerical population and and undoubtedly their resources to be able to provide the laity almost with a with a stage on which their their most um almost outlandish uh desires in in religious performance can can be played out um and we see uh, laity almost i think reconsidering the place of a monastery church in in their lives as practicing Christians because they they recognize in a way perhaps that their immediate ancestors um, had, had perhaps given up on that that, that that monasteries actually perhaps could be a part of this new lively religious life that they want to lead because they can bring their polyphonic music in there and and have it performed at the most extraordinary level they can have much longer, larger, and and more dramatic processions for a funeral ceremony, and so on. And I think, um, again, this this is part of this sort of mutual exchange that I'm I'm talking about because it su- suits both sides of this relationship very well. The laity want a more ambitious and and um, uh, performative religion, and the monasteries want to continue to contribute. They want to have a place in the neighbourhood and they are willing to open up their churches in this way. Um, It also changes these religious orders in ways that, that again, I think historians sometimes have been rather rather slow to to catch up with. Um, We tend to associate the um, the orders of the friars in the Middle Ages with, um, of course, the practice of poverty, with um, mm-hmm. the, the itinerant life around the neighbourhood, um, poor, poor priests who are serving out there almost on the streets. But actually what we see in the 16th century in England and Wales are friaries that, that do just as much as the monasteries to, to open up their churches as stages for this kind of lavish religious performance that the laity are looking for. Um, so it's fascinating to see how willing these religious orders are to evolve their, their practices, um, not, I think, in their terms to turn their back on their early traditions, but rather 
to keep in step with changing patterns of of piety. And these are religious orders which had always seen, understood themselves to be responding to the the impulses of, of if you like, the church militant, that is, um, uh, the community of all, all believers. And so I think they would have argued, we've, we've not stopped being Benedictines or Cistercians or Carthusians or, or friars, but rather we are now um, adapting our ways of practicing our religion mm-hmm. to, to, to bind ourselves most closely to, to the religious impulses of wider society. Hmm. So if we turn to the, you know, Tudor Reformation itself, you know, beginning with Henry VII, the first Tudor, um, you know, you note that there are a lot of areas of continuity uh, in terms of how he and his regime approached the regular estate. Um, But there is a a notable change that you indicate, which is uh, the increasing expectation that the regime will insert itself and its authority directly into the affairs and administration of the houses themselves. So can you describe that a little bit? Yes. Um, With the coming of the Tudors, (coughs) excuse me, with the coming of the Tudors, uh, there's no doubt that there is a new determination for these uh, powerful institutions, wealthy institutions spread across the kingdom to be harnessed to the priorities of uh, royal government rather than in any sense to be in competition with it. Now, we associate that that strategy with Henry VIII, but we do so in a sense wrongly because that mm-hmm. strategy is already being unfolded in the reign of his father, uh, Henry VII recognises that he has taken the throne when um, the crown in England is at its least mighty, if you like, its uh, support, um, its institutional uh, structures and its financial position are all very weak. And what he recognises and what really defines his reign is is the need to... um, counterbalance the weakness, the the inherent weakness of the monarchy with uh, challenging the independent authority of other uh, sources of power in his kingdom. And we know that he takes on the nobility and, and limits their capacity to threaten royal authority. And he's doing the same with church institutions. He's binding church institutions into uh, royal government, in effect, to, to make the church much more an arm of secular authority. And I think historians haven't recognised the implications enough for, uh, for, for how that changes the relationship with monasteries. In short, I think Henry VII is aiming to create a network of, of what are really royal monasteries. Um, to some extent, it's almost a, a, a throwback to a much, much earlier period where we see, for example, the, um, at, the, at the coming of the Normans uh, into the English kingdom, a, a determination for church and state to, to act as one. Uh, we know that um, William I 
um, brings with him the um, the monastic leadership of Normandy's monasteries. Um, uh, Lanfranc from um, uh, being a Norman abbot is projected to becoming Archbishop of Canterbury, and and that is part of a strategy to ensure that the church, far from pulling away from royal power, is actually working in concert with it. And I see coming out of the Wars of the Roses and out of Bosworth Field, um, I see Henry VII really employing the same sort of strategy. And and Henry VIII builds on this. And and again, we tend to to show most interest in Henry VIII's attitude to uh, the church from the time of his divorce from Catherine of Aragon onwards. But actually, we probably need to um, extend our perspective back to the very beginning of his reign, because really he picks up from um, from where his father has has left off in continuing to build a network of of royal monasteries that are directly under his scrutiny, and to ensure that the wider network of religious houses and religious orders are also increasingly made aware that it is royal authority to which they are answerable. And to some extent, I, I do try to make the point in the book that in doing this, the Tudor regime is, is if you like, pushing at an open door, because in fact, the, the self-image, the, if you like, the political outlook of most religious houses in England is exactly that, to be a, an adjunct of royal authority, to be bound into the state. They have a strong sense that they are part of the ship of state. So, again, we, we've fallen for uh, really a, a, a partisan Protestant misrepresentation of the religious orders if we assume that, if we assume that they are simply interested in papal authority and in some way are inclined to undermining monarchy and its its rule in the kingdom. On the contrary, um, the religious orders have always had a very, uh, in England, have always had a very um, detached view of the papacy and had clashed repeatedly with it. And so to a great extent, after the years of instability during the Wars of the Roses, monastic leaders in England are, are welcoming the opportunity provided by the Tudor monarchy, almost to have a route back to becoming what they knew they had been once um, at the time of the Anglo-Norman monarchy, that is, an adjunct of the state, being part of that ship of state. And so I think, ironically, just on the eve of Henry VIII's divorce, just on the eve of the the royal supremacy and Henry becoming head of the church, I think there's a strong sense among the monastic leadership in the kingdom, that they are now on exactly the same page, if you like, as the Tudor monarchy, that they feel that their moment has come again to be part and parcel of a new age of stable royal government. And from the perspective of, I guess, those looking at the regulars, so, you know, the crown, reformers, etc., it almost seems like there are kind of two kinds of realizations that are dawning on people um, that starts in the reign of Henry VII and really shapes the history all the way to the final closures. One, as you note, is a sort of renewed um, focus on the immense material wealth that 
these monasteries and friaries that have accumulated over the years. And, and the other, and this is coming from, you know, Christian humanism and the new uh, reformist religious culture at the time, is the disparity between their current religious practice and those of the um, ancient, pristine uh patristic church. So, and over the next, you know, starting with Henry VII and, and like I said, up to even 1539, a lot of what you document again and again really surrounds those two concerns. One is their material resources and two is the need to reform them along more ascetic lines. So can you, I guess, talk a little bit about how these um, perceptions arose in the early Tudor period? Yes. Yeah, so on the first point, um, there's no doubt that the instability and weakness of the monarchy itself and the wider instability experienced by nobility and gentry during those those difficult 40 odd years of of civil conflict uh, within England that we call the, the Wars of the Roses have left um, the political nation, the monarchy, high nobility, higher gentry, uh, feeling um, that their their fortunes and their future are very fragile. And naturally, there is uh, a growing um, sense of... of um, I, I think a degree of, of uh, resentment at the degree to which... Uh, Perpetual institutions like churches and 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 religious houses have weathered those storms far better. That they um, have held on to their estates, they are holding on to their their income, and they are a natural focus of attention for um, a, a political class that has seen its own roots of of power, authority, and wealth um, so so weakened um, in recent times. Uh, I think, on the other hand, that there is a, a, a common conviction in, in the political nation, and it comes from the monarchy downwards, that there is an accommodation to be found, that there isn't a, an absolute conviction that the only way to, as it were, rebalance these inequalities or to, um, to curtail or curb or limit the territorial and, and economic power of these church institutions is to sweep them away. On the contrary, I think what uh, the experience of Henry VII's reign um, teaches much of the political nation is that, in fact, in return for patronage, service as stewards and in other roles, the monasteries are very open to almost a sort of sharing of some of that territorial uh, influence and 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 wealth and and as I've documented, um, monasteries really quite cooperatively open up their estates for exchanges with the crown, for uh, a distribution of prize properties to uh, to the monarchy, uh, to uh, to higher nobility gentry and and so on in return for a stronger, closer patronage relationship and in return for having a stake as I've said in 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 royal government uh, itself for having some sort of public influence so um, the if, if there is a tension over the uh, religious houses territorial 
presence and wealth. It's a tension that that they are working through quite productively um, between, shall we say, 1485 and, and the end of the 1520s, which is why I think the leadership of the religious houses had no reason necessarily to anticipate a great um, breach in that relationship um, uh, at the end of the 1520s. I think there's much less um, sense of of being able to navigate those differences of perspective on on your second point, which is there is no doubt that the the Christian humanist outlook of the educated laity and the educated secular clergy, uh, archbishops and bishops and, and higher clergy, by the beginning of the 16th century, really sets them on on a, a, a path of, of great difference to most uh, members of the religious orders. They see, by, by almost losing themselves in the history of the early church, in the history of the, of the church fathers, and in that sort of almost romantically pioneering period, of the Christian Church that they read about in in accounts um, now newly edited by Erasmus and other other humanist scholars, they read of a an idealized and as I say, really quite romanticized view of a church that looks very different to the one they have in front of them, and that does seem to create a a pretty unbridgeable gap. Of understanding between themselves and 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 the regulars, the regulars have shared much of that education, but they argue that these two perspectives are not in some way mutually exclusive, and they should not be allowed to cancel each other out. They would argue that yes, indeed, there is much that uh, in the early church and its history that ca- that can be a source of inspiration that sets down a kind of model. For, um, for religious life, but they also argue that their institutions and their mode of life have evolved, but for good reason, not because they are morally bankrupt, not because they are in, in a kind of headlong decline, uh, but because they have responded to the changing nature of the world around them. Um, and they would argue, I think it might be said uh, in, in a, more, a more convincing way, that... Um, we we need to look on those those um, stories of the early church um, with a degree of detachment. This is not somehow a um, uh, a church that can really be rebuilt in our own day. They would argue, but there are some in the laity and in the in the higher secular clergy who who disagree and who genuinely believe, as they embark in the fifteen twenties, that they can realise something of what they read about in in the pages of um, Augustine or Jerome. Um, And as I say, I think think that is the argument that is unresolved. I think if, um, even in the 1530s, I would say it would be fair to be still quite confident that a resolution over the territory and wealth claimed by the monasteries could have been found. But but could that difference of outlook on what kind of church was possible, could that have ever been bridged? I'm, I'm more doubtful because I think, yes, um, purist Christian humanist uh, views of what kind of 
early church could be recreated in the 16th century really um, made it very difficult um, to uh, to see the monasteries as anything other than somehow backsliding, somehow um, locked into a kind of desperate decline. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a perfect summary of it. Um, I, I want to get us to the kind of meat of the narrative, which is really the period of, you know, 1534 to 1540. So I hate to treat the 1520s and early 1530s too elliptically, but um, and, you know, for expedience sake, maybe you can give us a kind of synopsis of what has happened. You know, it's the, let's say, on the eve of the royal supremacy. What what are the, in vague, uh, not vague, excuse me, in, in broad sketches, what are the key developments that had happened under um, Wolsey over the, the preceding decade or so? Okay, so um, in the first... 20 years or so of, of Henry VIII's reign, he has continued his father's general aim of bringing the religious orders and their houses and their estates under greater royal scrutiny and wherever possible, um, drawing them into uh, the state machinery um, and even where possible, um, grabbing some of their territory in exchange for greater protection of them and for allowing some of their leadership to have a place um, in in state government. So we, by the end of the 1520s, we do see some of the leadership of uh, England and Wales monasteries actually having a presence um, in Tudor government, in, in the court, um, and having an influence um, over the king himself. Meanwhile, his chief minister, Wolsey, has embarked on a process of reform, which is very much um, inspired by the kind of Christian humanist outlook that we've been speaking of, but which is one that is not seen to be a direct threat to the very principle of monasticism, at all, but is one that is in many ways supported by uh, the the leadership of of monastic England. Wolsey has determined to rationalise the the range of monastic institutions within the kingdom. Um, he shuts down just about thirty of them, um, but a good proportion of those were already more or less lacking any any permanent population of 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 religious within them. And there is a sense in which for most of the monastic leadership that these steps that he's taken are consistent with a general move towards uh, creating a, a monastic estate which is, is closely bound to the priorities of the, of the Tudor regime. So by the time we get to Henry's divorce, to his marriage to Anne Boleyn and to the break with Rome, there's a sense in which the, the leadership, at least, feel that they've passed through a process of, of if you like, a sort of um, restart. They, they are placed mm. on a new footing and about to embark on um, further changes, which they, I, I suspect, and I do suggest this in the book, I suspect they see 
might deliver them the opportunity to claim even greater leadership. I think um, they they have a strong sense that they perhaps have played their hand well during the previous decade, that they both largely cooperated with Woolsey, but also were not implicated in his own downfall. And so perhaps they feel that they've read the politics of Crown and Court quite adeptly and feel that in the early 1530s, um, certainly those of them closest to Henry uh, amongst the abbots and priors, um, those who are, who sit in Parliament, those who are uh, uh, known as councillors of, of the king and who are regular, putting in regular appearances in the royal household, um, I think they have every reason to feel that they are now going to be part of this new Tudor future. And so when they sign up to a new English church with the the passing of the royal supremacy. I think they feel that this is going to be a new English church where Benedictines and Cistercians are actually featuring quite prominently. So I, I suspect there's a, a degree of, of confidence in 1534, which might seem contradictory given everything that we we assume about this period. But I think actually if we if we look at what's happened over the previous years, it it's, it's there plain enough that they feel that they are once again in concert with the Tudor regime, not in conflict with it. Yeah, um, that's definitely something that I, I saw as well, as sort of an almost, uh, I guess, in retrospect, a, a misplaced optimism, but, <laughs> but an optimism nonetheless. Um, Absolutely. So, yes. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the journey, I guess, towards the end, though not a, an inevitable one, um, it begins really with the royal supremacy. So can you tell me uh, or the listeners kind of just a brief uh, overview of the kind of overall way that the regulars had digested the crown's new claims? Yes, I think the regulars see the outline of the royal supremacy more clearly than they do perhaps its its detailed implications. So they see the royal headship as not being necessarily a direct challenge to them or their continuance, their their future. Because as I've already said, um, it was part of their, their, their cultural DNA almost to be pretty suspicious, pretty um, detached from uh, the Roman papacy. They were no great and, and consistent enthusiasts for um, the governance of of the papacy in Rome. They saw Rome often as a threat to their own independence and certainly to their financial position, as as much if not more than they saw the crown as a threat to those things. So in principle, I think they are enthusiastic about the notion of uh, an English national church, a a Ecclesia Anglicana, um, and it plays to their strong sense of historical identity. I think one of the the keys to understanding monasteries and their culture in in medieval England is is their historical imagination. They carry with them a sense of Christianity coming into England with Augustine of Canterbury. Um, They they all know the stories of of Dunstan, the archbishop uh, in the 10th century. They all know the stories of the the refoundation and expansion of the church after the Norman conquest. And and I I, I think certainly they see the supremacies in some way uh, another 
staging post in that long historical narrative that they buy into. What they don't see, and this is one way in which certainly, as you've said, we we can point in retrospect to some misplaced optimism and confidence. What they don't see through, I think, are the implications that are there in the text of the act of supremacy itself, which is that the king is giving himself the authority to reform the monastic estate. It's there in the act of supremacy that um, what will follow is um, at some point a visitation uh, with all of the authority um, that traditionally a visitation of a church institu- institution included, which which meant the, the root and branch change of that institution. It could mean a change in governance. It could mean a change in the customs followed by the people living in that community uh, and so on. It, it could mean, in other words, systematic transformation. And there right. it is in the act of supremacy. But I think it only, I think it only really um, confronts the monastic estate, that that was always implied with giving the king the headship of the church. It only dawns on them when the first royal commissioners pitch up um, in 1535, that suddenly, actually, the royal supremacy was not just a matter of principle, but it carried with it a new practice for the church. And I think they genuinely are slow to catch up with that. Right. Well, they didn't have to wait too long to find out <laughs> because the, um, you know, as you mentioned, the visitation takes place in 1535. So I'm going to ask some um, questions about that because it's a really um, momentous period uh, event in in the history of this period. So first, a just terminological clarification for the listener. So this period sees um, what people might be familiar with as um, the visitation and also the valuation. So can you um, detail the difference between those two things and then um, also describe a little bit like, uh, um, you know, what kinds of questions did the visitation ask and in what ways did these interrogations break new ground in tightening the crown's grip around the regular estate? Okay, so first of all, yes, the royal supremacy um, carries with it, although the monastic estate perhaps didn't um, digest that it carried with it, um, the promise of two unprecedented interventions in in the the way that they were uh, administered. The first is a systematic valuation um, of their property and their income. This is, I suppose, the the analogy for uh, a 21st century audience is is a is a tax valuation, uh, a tax right. assessment. Um, now, this had never happened under the authority of the st- the state, the royal government, for all church institutions before, and in fact, it had only been carried out once by the Roman papacy uh, for English church institutions, and that was way back in 1291. So this really does break new ground. Um, now, it breaks new ground in a sense in both directions. It's it's an unprecedented intervention and interference and level of scrutiny for the monasteries. Um, but it's also breaking new ground administratively for the royal government. And it becomes clear almost immediately that the royal government's ambition is not matched by its capacity to deliver. It's very difficult for the royal government to carry out quite such a systematic 
assessment. Um, it would be difficult for any government in any period of, of British history, certainly before the modern era, to do something quite so um, uh, comprehensive with given the complexity of these institutions and their property holdings. A typical monastery would hold property across half a dozen counties of England and Wales. And so to call in all of the data relating to those properties um, is, is a is significant undertaking. And um, what results in the valuation, in fact, is, is um, little more than a, um, a thumbnail snapshot of the, the true extent of their property and the true extent of their uh, of their levels of income and and expenditure, but nonetheless, this is carried out and it's done um, at, at great speed. Um, it's beginning in the early months of 1535, and um, the earliest returns are coming back to the royal government in Westminster by the early autumn um, of 1535. So it's it's speedy, um, but it's rather um, it's got rough edges around it. It's by no means. Um, a, a complete piece of work. Hard on the heels of the valuation is another unprecedented intervention, which is a visitation. Now, church institutions since the 13th century of all kinds, not just monasteries, had been subject to visitation. This is when the um, presiding authority over that church institution, typically a bishop, would subject the institution to a, an internal examination and audit effectively, to um, take a health check of how well that institution was being run, um, including its personnel, but also its administration, its finance, uh, every aspect of the institution. Now, these had occurred at regular intervals for most church institutions. But some monasteries had always claimed more or less complete exemption from being subject to visitation by any institution other than the papacy itself or their own orders, so their own monastic authorities. So some, up until 1535, had only ever been subject to visitation, if you like, by themselves, by their own authorities. So for some of them, this is a very new experience. And for all of them, the experience of being subject to visitation, not by members of the church themselves, by clergy, but by secular representatives, representatives of the secular royal government, this, this is entirely new territory. Uh, it means, in effect, that rather than being subject to an examination by other people who are priests and who are members of the same one church, you are now being subject to examination as a church by people who are common lawyers, who are um, uh, exchequer officials, um, financiers, people who are politicians. Now, um, just as in our, in our own day, I think, if, if a church institution was being examined by, uh, um, by those who knew little of the running of church institutions, um, uh, questions would be would be asked. Um, and, and in the same way, in 1535, what's perhaps most unsettling for the monasteries is that questions of monastic uh, behaviour are now being asked uh, by mm. men who are not clergy themselves, they're not priests, they haven't taken a solemn vow uh, to live as a monk, and yet they are examining 
um, the internal workings of these institutions. The questions that they're subject to are very searching. The initial um, outline of questions to be asked of every monastery institution runs to um, more than 70 different clauses of inquiry. And every individual is interviewed and asked um, to give evidence about the, the conduct of the institution and, the, and of, of its members. And of course, as is so often the case in any um, inquiry uh, working through individuals, um, the, the visitors working for the royal government um, lose no time in playing off one interviewee against another. And so we very quickly get into um, a, uh, a sort of environment of, of informants, of those who are um, mm. trying to, um, uh, to win favour for themselves as individuals by um, um, revealing or making allegations um, of revelations that they think may be advantageous to them uh, as individuals. Um, and whether or not it was part of the plan of the Tudor government, there's no doubt that the result is is a sort of almost McCarthyite um, atmosphere and climate where um, many interviewees are are raking back over recent history and and reporting to the visitors. Uh, the abbot said this three years ago about the king, and he shouldn't have said this. Uh, I'm sure you'd like to know. Um, and it's remarkable when we work through the documents. It's remarkable to see how, I think, how recognisable the the um, the climate of um, allegation and counter allegation is. This, um, if 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 you didn't look closely at the dates on the documents, um, this could really fit into any period of uh, of maybe the last hundred years or so of of of, of Western history. This uh, when. Right. When the state machine begins to apply um, a, a process of fear on 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 a particular constituency, how how human the reaction is, and it may have been four hundred and eighty years ago, but but it's very recognisable. Yeah, and you know, one of the really entertaining, but also like very uh, uh, interesting parts of the book is the constant, you know, the, the letters of the commissioners are really well attested, you know, not their, res- not the responses from Cromwell, unfortunately, but their, their messages to him. So we can really see their individual personalities. Um, and also the kind of overwhelming sense of frustration at their task and oftentimes at each other. And a lot of that frustration, as I read it in the book, really emerges from not just the scale of their task, but also the ambiguity of their instructions, which suggests to me, and I think I read you right, that it also suggests to you that this should militate against thinking that at this stage, the extinction of the monasteries was at all a clear goal of either Cromwell's or Henry's. Um, So if that's not what they're up to, what do you think they are up to at this point? So firstly, yes, you're you're quite right that what the surviving letters and other documents show to us is just how far the government began this process of inquiry without clearly defined ends. 
Uh, I think what they're about in 1535 is not much more than uh, an intensification of this scrutiny and supervision of institutions which had been part of the Tudor plan since early in Henry VII's reign. This is a direct continuation from what uh, Henry VIII at his accession and then under Wolsey had been doing, wanting to ensure that all monastic institutions that would remain in, 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 in existence would be kept within a tight framework of royal government. And um, I think at most they are trying to root out those um, sources of challenge to that vision. So if there are individuals, if there are voices, if there are bodies of opinion that uh, appear not to be cooperative, appear not to be inclined to, to be complicit with the priorities of the Tudor regime, then they are to be rooted out. But there's no indication that there is a well-drawn blueprint at this stage for systematic closure. Uh, And it's interesting that what directly follows the visitation in 1535 is a plan that seems to be drawn together quite quickly in early 1536 for the closure of some monasteries. But it's, it's a process of closure which is very comparable to uh, to what Woolsey had been engaged in a decade before, which is a sort of rationalisation, a view that those uh, foundations that are struggling to survive because of their low levels of income, because um, they've got more demands on them than they can possibly satisfy with the income they have, are to be rationalised. And early on in that plan for closure in 1536, there's a a common agreement not to remove people from living a monastic life, but simply to redeploy them, to relocate them to other monasteries, which is what Wolsey had always had uh, in mind when he carried out his closures in the 1520s. So I don't think there's much evidence of a a great change of of plan here. As always, though, through the 1530s, the mechanics of how to carry this out are not thought through. And there's certainly a lack of clarity, even among the the government uh, officers. So Cromwell, clearly, from the letters that that we, we have that are sent to him, Cromwell is not sharing his thinking with many of those who then carry out his bidding. Um, And it's clear that what the government perhaps doesn't fully appreciate is that there's a spectrum of opinion among those who are actually in government service. There are some who clearly share the King and Cromwell's view that um, the main priority with the monasteries is to bring them under greater royal control. But there are clearly others who would dearly like to see an end to them, who are fervent in their um, condemnation of of this uh, traditional form of religious life, who are convinced Christian humanists who see no place for uh, the old religious orders in a a new church. And and it seems to me that that, uh, 
the leadership of the Tudor regime has underestimated just how much diversity of opinion there is um, among their own government officials. But but we know that the King and Cromwell also underestimate the diversity of opinion in Parliament at this time too, that, that there is much more partisanship both at both ends of the of the spectrum those who want harder and faster reform and those who want much less reform within parliament and cromwell is is um it's clear wrong-footed by by misreading the the range the breadth of opinion in the political nation and i think we see that um in in the visitations and then in the um in the closures that follow uh, in 1536. But no, I think we have to wait until really um, the last year of this decade, 1539, before we can say with any certainty that the King and Cromwell's view has turned from the retention of some monastic institutions to the closure of all of them. Right. And and I will definitely um, ask you more about that in, in just a moment. Um, but uh, before that, I would say that, at least in my reading, 1536 seems to be a fairly pivotal year, because before that, you know, we just discussed all of these really unprecedented um, changes. And I think it's fair to say that there, the regulars were... Um, fairly quiescent when you compare, you know, compare their reaction to the the scale of the innovation that they were facing. But, you know, 1530, late 1535, 1536, you know, we see some, some, you know, some, some new things, a divorce from Anne Boleyn, um, a series of injunctions that are read to them. Um, And it's here in 1536 that we start to see epicenters of resistance um, cropping up that in some places, like in the Pilgrimage of Grace, boil over into full rebellion. So can you talk about, you know, where you think this fairly quick and dramatic um, sort of volatility and change comes from in 1536 and 37? Yes, I think, first of all, the the point to make is that at as we move from 1535 to 36 there is a, a sense in which the monastic estate is is fractured and fragmented my reading is that the uh the established benedictine monasteries that had always been um closer to uh crown and government than many of the others are uh, consider that the injunctions they have been presented with at the visitation almost are their passport to uh, a new kind of existence as as royal foundations following a pattern of life that has been passed down to them by the new head of the church, the king. And I think in a sense it does seem to cut them free from perhaps other networks of monasteries and orders, because it does seem as though they are, um, to a degree, enthusiastic about the reformed mode of monastic life that the king's injunctions have have set out for them. I think for 
many of the um, smaller, poorer monasteries, which had followed to some extent a hand-to-mouth existence and had depended increasingly on the neighbourhoods around them. I think from early in 1536, it's pretty clear that their outlooks are increasingly coloured by the opinions of the lay neighbourhoods around them, that they are um, absorbing a growing sense of anger and resentment at what is an increasingly interventionist Tudor government, a Tudor government that's not just interfering in church affairs, but is increasingly passing a, a heavier burden of taxation onto provincial society, that is increasingly seeking to govern with statute law um, uh, and uh, establishing Westminster and its infrastructure as the centre of authority, which um, sits very uneasily in what is otherwise still a very um, diffuse uh, polity uh, and which has not yet accepted the um, the experience of a very centralising um, government. And I think that it is that um, meeting point of of instability and and perhaps almost impossibility of continuing under the king's injunctions for the poorer houses, um, combining with the anger and resentment in, in lay provincial society around them that combines together in some regions to break out into protest. Um, it's clear that um, the regulars who join open rebellion are not just uh, victims, are not just stooges being being swept up into somebody else's rebellion. Um, they're not passive. But there's no doubt that what they say, those of them who are captured afterwards, there's no doubt that many of the, the views that they present of the king, of Cromwell, of the Tudor regime, seem to me to be parroting the views of the uh, the resentful gentry and 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 uh, others um, in those those provincial communities. So I'm not I'm not convinced that um, much of the um, strongest impulse to rebel in 1536 is is a defence of the monastic principle. It's more mm. that poorer institutions less well equipped to withstand such short and sharp intervention from the crown um, find common cause with other bodies of resentment around them, whereas the largest, wealthiest, best-placed, best-patronised institutions faced with a fork in the road, find it very easy to take the one that takes them closer to royal government than to take the one that takes them closer to a resentful and rebellious provincial society, if you see what I mean. Um, and so we see a, a split in, in, in the monastic estate at this, at this point. Um, I think the, the area that is, is most interesting in challenging what the government is 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 doing in it in all of these interventions is not so much the the um, uh, 
marching towards barricades and taking up arms that we see in the in the autumn of 1536 and the spring of 1537. But the uh, much more covert forms of challenge, where that that mutual and symbiotic relationship between monasteries and the neighbourhood, which I've talked about earlier, and which I think was characteristic of most monasteries in provincial England in the early 16th century, that is um, the the canvas on which many parts of the country now express their challenge, demonstrate their challenge to what uh, the Tudor regime is trying to achieve by channeling property and um, rights to, to, to property, tithes and, and, and so forth, um, and also even treasures contained within monasteries, and by um, ensuring that those are concealed away so that the crown cannot sequestrate them, cannot, cannot seize them and, and, and take ownership of them. Because that resistance begins in 1536, just like the armed resistance begins. But unlike the armed resistance, that resistance continues. And it continues for the rest of the decade uh, and on. And it's much more damaging to the crown than any of the armed resistance that we we see, because it puts permanently beyond the reach of the crown much mm-hmm. of the property and power that the Tudor regime was clearly aiming for. Um, if I'm right that the Tudor regime, above all, wanted to harness the property, wealth and power of religious houses for itself, to make it closely bound to the Tudor regime. Um, By these forms of resistance, provincial society with the monasteries um, are able to um, ensure that most of that, uh, most of those sources of power are are kept without, outside of the reach uh, of the crown. Um, And it establishes a a really fascinating sort of um, standoff, I suppose, between the Tudor regime and, and wider society, that the Tudor regime is um, moving towards a situation where it might be able to close the monasteries, but it, it will never be able to absorb the entirety of the monasteries' property, power, and wealth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, remarkable the, the extent to which they're still trying to, to get this property back for, for decades, as you yes. discuss at the, at the end of the book. Um, I guess what I would turn to next is that I'd say like, if I'm right from my reading here, like, you know, 1538, etc. this seems to be kind of like the next phase of an, an uptick in surrendering. And, and there's a statute um, for the suppression of certain uh, monasteries um, that you note is, is actually misnamed in the way that it's enrolled. But can you tell uh, the listeners about the statute, um, its aims, and the effects that its implementation had? Yeah, this is an interesting um, instance of a, of a sort of historiographical um, distortion, because I, I think it's fair to say the Act of 1539 has passed into the textbooks often as the, the second act of dissolution. Um, in fact, it, it's not an act for the dissolution of monasteries like the um, the first uh, statute relating to monasteries of, of 1536 is indeed for the closure of monasteries 
with a, an annual value of, of less than £200. Um, the Act of 1539 is to uh, regulate the way in which monasteries are uh, shut down and their property dispersed um, and, and, of course, sequestrated by the Crown. And it's passed at that point because by the end of 1538, uh, the Crown's growing control over and interference in the affairs of monasteries um, its demands for further property exchanges, for uh, some say in the appointments of stewards and other officers, um, and its demands and Cromwell's personal demands for fees and fines for uh, continued supervision um, are draining income from monasteries. And many are reaching the point that they have no option but to surrender themselves up for closure. And the Crown is, in fact, worried by the beginning of 1539 that the momentum for closure is out of its own control. So there's, in a sense, a kind of profound irony over this um, this statute of 1539 that we we often call an act of dissolution because it's, it's actually, in a sense, um, motivated by the Crown wanting to slow down the process, to, to recover some sort of control over the process. It's, it's directly um, responding to, to what I've just been describing, which is the fact that it's clear that where um, the Crown's authority is, is not very strong in, in remoter parts of provincial England and Wales, that... Um, the dispersal of property is already underway um, and being taken into people's own hands. And the Crown is trying desperately to recover some sort of control um, and to use statute law once again to sort of draw a line and to say, uh, hold on right there. Um, if there's going to be closure of monasteries and, and seizure of estates and redistribution and sequestration, um, the crown is the authority for that, um, and it's not to be undertaken by by other parties. Um, so it's a sign, I, I would strongly suggest, um, actually of how um, poorly handled this process has been by the end of the 1530s, um, that the, the crown has unleashed a process that it can't possibly control. Um, it's a reminder that... The characteristic of, of Henry VIII's Tudor regime is of um, a regime that is full of ambition and vision, but very limited in its machinery, very limited in the capacity of its institutions of government, really to govern for the whole of the country. Um, this is, if you like, uh, a regime that is what we might call early modern in its ambition and vision, but inescapably medieval in its machinery and, and in the exercise of its power. Um, I think it's quite characteristic that, uh, and this of course comes through in those letters we've mentioned, that this is still a, a government that operates through uh, messengers carried on horseback and, and through scribbled notes in, in slivers of parchment um, this is not 
a government of the printing age. This is a government that that King Henry V at the beginning of the 15th century would have recognised in in its contingency and in its slowness to respond. And all of those things, the contingency, the slowness of response, is bound up in that act of 1539. Yeah, no, I mean... That's exactly how it comes across as well. It's it's it is a remarkable series of ironies. Um, I guess to to kind of close out this phase of it, you know, by by the end of fifteen thirty nine, most of the monasteries are gone. The um, mendicant orders have completely gone extinct, which is remarkable in and of itself that 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 kind of happened organically. Um, and it's at at this period, as you alluded to before that you feel we can pretty definitively say that Cromwell and the King are now envisioning the complete eradication of monasticism in England and Wales. Can you, um, you know, discuss why we can now say that and additionally what catalyzed that shift of thinking in them? Yes, well, perhaps um, firstly, what what catalyzed that thinking? It, it seems clear that by the summer of 1539, the king especially, and Cromwell, um, but perhaps the king especially, is fearful that what had appeared to be, even after the events of 1536 and 1537, a relatively um, stable and settled Uh, position for his supremacy, his headship of the church, is perhaps beginning to fall apart, that there had been rumours of, at least, challenges to and, and questions raised over the validity of that headship. And those who had previously shown outward support for it are said or rumoured to be uh, reaching a point that they are withdrawing their support for it, Um, particularly amongst the leadership of um, some of the oldest, largest, wealthiest monasteries. And I think quite simply that this provokes a degree of panic and paranoia in the king. We know that the king's personality um, is is prone to such um, waves of of feeling. And we know also that perhaps the the core of Henry's vision from the divorce with with Catherine through to the end of the decade is of the, the rightness of his vision for the headship of the church. We know that the the wider vision he has for his monarchy is for um, a monarchy that a kingship that commands total obedience across his realm. And I think there are enough indications reaching through Cromwell to Henry himself by that summer of 1539, that perhaps that fragile consensus is now looking very fragile indeed, that that in principle, buy-in to his supremacy 
is is no longer bought in quite as firmly as it it had seemed even only 12 months or 18 months before i think that is what is turning the tide by the autumn uh, and as i think i say in the book it, it there's an indication that right up until that that summer leading members of the surviving monasteries were still very much uh, a presence in and around the king they were still presiding over um royal household services and ceremonies. Um, But it's interesting that we don't see them there from the early autumn of 1539. It does seem as if at last, when the king previously has been um, blowing hot and cold in his personal attitude to members of the religious orders, that something has changed, something has turned uh, by this point. Having said that, Yes, it's true that in the autumn of 1539, the majority of monastic institutions and all of the houses of the friars have been closed. But it's pretty clear that as we move into the Christmas period of 1539, that the handful of leading monasteries that remain still consider that probably they have some future as royal churches or what we would call royal colleges, that is, communities of clergy um, serving a a grand royal church, uh, and had every reason to think that they might still be there in the course of of 1540. Um, Not least because some of those that still stand are associated with cathedral churches, but also some of the greater abbeys, which had always been under royal patronage, must have considered, I think, at the end of 1539, that they'd done enough demonstrably to show their complete investment in Henry's vision. And their correspondence, such as we have, suggests that they, uh, if they don't go into 1540 with confidence, they go into 1540 still with some assurance that there is a future for them to be negotiated. So I think Henry's attitude to the threat that monasteries pose to his supremacy having changed, but with some small number still feeling that they can possibly negotiate a way forward uh, for themselves. Um, Cromwell, of course, is very difficult to read. I suspect that he sees enough evidence in the autumn of 1539 um, to to feel that um, the leading monasteries will still prove themselves to be resistant to a total um, acceptance of of secular authority. Um, And so that's how we go into 1540, with with perhaps some hoping that they might negotiate survival in some form, um, but with um, the King and Cromwell, I think, having having turned a corner, having having moved to a position where um, the future uh, is best assured for their plan for the Tudor regime without monasteries. Yeah, and so to kind of close this, this episode out, um, you know, it, now that it is 1540, can you describe the fate of those last greatest, kind of most august houses, um, the mechanisms through which they do come to be suppressed or surrendered and, um, you know, the immediate reaction to that. Yeah. So um, 
January is the critical month, month in fact, because um, most of those that remain are are closed in January, and it's uh, an almost day by day process. Um, as soon as the the Christmas and New Year festivities are over, um, the commissioners move um, to uh, present closure as a as a fait accompli to um, most of the remaining houses, with only um, uh, Canterbury, Rochester, and Waltham, um, uh, Waltham Abbey in Essex, just north of London, being um, always for more than a decade um, very close to the king, a place where the king and um, each of his wives through the 1530s had spent a good deal of time. Um, Waltham being the last independent abbey uh, to be closed just before Easter um, 1540. Um, I think it's fair to say still. The, the descent of the commissioners and, and the presentation of nothing to negotiate but just a fait accompli that they must close uh, will have come as a surprise to those remaining institutions um, because they had already understood themselves to be almost no longer a monastery in, in the traditional sense, but but as I say, a kind of royal church. And so they, they would have expected that they might have continued um, in that capacity. Um, then the very last closure of all is actually the closure of the the order of hospitallers, the Knights Hospitaller, which doesn't actually uh, become formally confirmed um, until the early summer uh, of 1540. And it's it's widely reported at the time that this comes as a surprise to their prior provincial who um, who ups and dies almost immediately uh, as a result with the shock of, of this. Um, now that may be purely apocryphal as a story, but I think I think there is, as always, a, a germ of truth in that. In that, um, those that were closest to the royal regime, of course, had every reason to think that they might be spared uh, this process. Um, but that's how we get to fifteen forty, and of course, um, that um, that closure is is. Um, uh, happening at a point when when Cromwell's own career is coming to an end. Um, but once again, we cannot um, emphasize enough, I think, here, the, the sheer contingency of all of this. Um, there's no indication at Easter 1540 um, that Cromwell um, is, is shortly going to go to the scaffold um, any more than I think um, two or three weeks before 1540 that the monks of Canterbury think they will no longer be monks the other side of Easter. Um, uh, events are just as contingent as they have been over the previous four years. And and I, I uh, can't emphasize enough to the listeners that even after this, there's still another third of the book that talks about in, in such granular detail the impact of the closure on all different aspects of life, politics, and and history. Um, I unfortunately am going to have to really elide over most of it because of uh, the time constraints of this episode. But maybe to close us out, you know, you can, um, you know, given what we discussed earlier and throughout the episode about the deep integration of monasteries into local economic and social life, um, how did their displacement impact the economy, tenancies, and social fabric of the communities in which they once occupied such a central role? 
Well, I think uh, a summary way of answering that would be that there is, as in so so much of this uh, story, there's a really rather um, wonderful paradox in that it both profoundly reshapes the neighbourhoods where these monasteries stood uh, and were part of the, the living and working environment, but at the same time, to those who saw them close between 1536 and 1540, also, uh, it would appear that nothing had changed. There is that central paradox that the outward appearance, I think, in 1540, 1541, 1542, for many neighbourhoods would have been, other than the absence of people coming to and fro through those gateways and into those precincts and the absence of the sound of bells throughout the day and all sorts of other uh, sights and sounds, that the outline of monastic England is still there. Um, and it's a, it's a delicious irony in a sense that monastic England has been silenced. It has been closed as a network of corporations but it's not been removed it's it's no longer in service but it's not out of sight because one of the most striking aspects of my study that i think um allow it to be called a new history is that we can now see that the churches the surrounding buildings are not all immediately torn down um, nor are they even immediately unroofed and left as shells. Many of them um, are left standing and are simply mothballed. Um, and just as the Crown didn't seem to quite know always what its plan was in the 1530s, equally in the 1540s and 50s, the Crown, again, doesn't seem to quite know what it wants to do with these sites and their infrastructure. And it's clear that the people, the personnel of these places have not passed out of sight either. Many of them have not moved more than a few yards from their previous dwelling places inside the precincts. Many of them are now lodging in the neighbourhood. And of course, over the years that follow, certainly by the end of the 1540s, many of the men who are priests have taken up secular church livings nearby. It's becoming increasingly clear the more research is done that a good many of their own fraternal networks between the uh, the former religious men and religious women are maintained and um, a good many of them seem to, in different parts of the country, set up house together and continue to live what we might describe as a kind of common life uh, with one another. And then the other striking continuity is, of course, the outcome of all of those efforts to inhibit the Crown's effort to sequester church property during the 1530s, um, that we see lay society in neighbourhoods where there had been religious houses actually retaining hold on much of the property that they had leased as tenants or taken possession of just before or during the dissolution process. So the proprietors of post-dissolution England 
in the first decade and more look very much like the proprietors in pre-dissolution England, because they are, in so many cases, one and the same people. And we see that even in the redistribution of the, the furnishings of these religious houses. Um, it's uh, striking just how often that those who had, for example, provided a set of priests' vestments to the monastery that they were patrons of just before the dissolution, what do we find them doing at the dissolution but appearing at the premises to recover those vestments and then they simply take them back into their possession or they give them to their parish church? So the average subject of Henry VIII at the end of his reign, if they'd gone to their parish church, they might well have found that the, um, the celebrant at the mass was a priest who they recognised from the monastery that was recently closed down because it was one of its former members. And they might well have recognised the cope on his back as the one that this patron or that patron had indeed given to that old monastery. And they might even recognise the choir stalls or the mass book on the lectern because they'd come from the monastery. So, as I say, um, the Tudor regime had ended the practice of monastic life but what had been so defining in its presence and its imprint in Tudor England was still there. It's a it's a fascinating story, and and uh, as I said, there's so much more in the book to delve into. So it's absolutely essential reading for anybody who wants to have an understanding of this really pivotal moment in in English history. Um, and it just remains for me to thank you, James, for for writing this book, for sharing it with me, and for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure talking with you.